Hello everyone, it's Roberto Guido here with episode number 5 of the Kickin' It with Cool People podcast. Our podcast is focused on highlighting individuals that have unique skills and stories. Today, Jake and I have Paul Evans as our guest. I actually got the chance to meet Paul while I was teaching at Immokalee High School. And he was in charge of the Entrepreneurship Incubator Program, which is really awesome. So in this podcast, we kind of just talk about what it means to be an entrepreneur, how to have a good business mindset, and just different challenges and obstacles that you might want to consider before trying to be an entrepreneur yourself. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Kicking It with Cool People. Roberto. Hey, how's it going, Paul? It's going well, man. I'm glad we got this sucker working. Yeah, very good. I think we're still waiting on Jake. So let's see if he comes through. Oh, I think he's there. Jake, you there? Howdy, howdy. All right. Awesome. All right. So, Paul, this is Jake, and um, we'll get to know each other through the podcast, but I think we're all set to go. All right, man. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing well, Jake. How are you? Good, man. Good. Good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. All right. So, let's get this uh, party started. All right. So, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Kicking It with Cool People podcast. My name is Roberto Guido, and today, Jake and I have Mr. Paul Evans as our guest. Paul graduated the University of Florida, majoring in entrepreneurship. He has had firsthand experience in building new companies and was the business and academic or uh, Academy of Finance teacher at Mockley High School for the past three years and has just recently accepted a position at FDCU where he will be teaching a course for their entrepreneurship program there. All right, so that's quite a wrap. So um, how are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing well, man. I'm, I'm happy to be here with you guys. All right. That's a rap sheet right there. That's, that's a lot of work. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, you know, ups and downs throughout that career. You know, it, uh, that's what I always, um, always like to tell my kids, especially when I start teaching them is, you know, I could go through all of the things that I've been fortunate enough to accomplish, but along with those come a lot of, uh, a lot of failures, you know, sort of cutting your teeth and learning the way before you um, are able to reach those points that you're hoping to reach from the beginning. Exactly, Paul. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned failures because um, I feel like today uh, entrepreneurship is such a, like a big buzzword and a lot of kids are seeing it uh, just as like the final product, but they're not really going and diving deep into the beginning stages of um, trying different things and experimenting and like you said, uh, having a lot of those failures. So um, I guess I guess a good way to start is kind of talking about those failures and seeing how those failure, failures molded you into how you work today. Yeah. So whenever I, um, whenever I walk into my classroom um, on the first day, we start talking about sort of what it takes to be an entrepreneur and the fact that entrepreneurship or entrepreneurism isn't necessarily, entrepreneurialism isn't necessarily a tangible thing. It's not something that you can, you can touch or hold. It's more of a mindset. 
It doesn't matter if you are a tech billionaire like Mark Zuckerberg, or you're a plumber who owns his own plumbing company, or you're an employee at a company that is incredibly innovative and creative, you can still have that entrepreneurial mindset. And I think because, like you said, Roberto, I think, I think because it's such a buzzword and thrown around so much, kids hear it and they automatically associate you know, the big name billionaires with it. And they don't necessarily understand a couple things. They don't understand that it, it pertains to anybody who can think innovatively, creatively outside of the box, but they also don't understand the hard work that goes into it uh, on the back end. You know, it wasn't, uh, Jeff Bezos wasn't born the richest man in the world. It took, mm -hmm. you know, decades to get to that point. And that's really what, uh, at least in my classroom, I try and convey to the students and get them to understand that it's more about picking a passion and going after it than it is about chasing money. Definitely, definitely. I agree with you 100%, Paul. And um, yeah, that's true, because if you focus on your passion and not the end result, then you're, you're always gonna be happy because um, even though you're struggling, you enjoy what you're doing. And that's kind of where Jake and I are right now, because Jake, is, you've been doing photography for a, a, couple, a couple of years now, right? Or going on to like a year? Uh, yeah, I mean, trying to get it launched, you know, as a, as a money-making hobby that I that started as to where it is now, um, a little bit over a year, you know, trying to figure out what I want to do, how I want to present myself, because that's another thing, uh, you know, I've, I've never taken an entrepreneurship class, so I'm excited to learn anything you have to, to yeah. say about, about marketing yourself or, you know, anything, Paul, that's, you're, you're going to be a wealth of knowledge, I hope, but I basically just stayed being as true as I could as, you know, a freelancer and just building those, those core person to person relationships. And that's, that's kind of how I started. Um, and it's been a lot of work. Yeah. And do I, I can tell you that me personally, I'm a huge proponent of the lean startup. Um, what that means is building and testing your idea as efficiently and cost effectively as possible. So not necessarily coming up with an idea, going out, raising a million bucks and then trying to build it and test it. And then, you know, six or seven months down the road, you decide that the target market you initially had was the wrong one, you know? Um, and I think that's very important for young entrepreneurs to understand is a lean startup has to do with um, what we call the iterative process. So making iterations throughout the um, lifespan of your business, you build a prototype, you test it, you get feedback, and then you make changes, and then you build the prototype and continue that process. And I think it's important for um, any entrepreneur, I think I think a lot of people get in the habit of saying young entrepreneurs, but I've met a lot of people who've started businesses uh, well into their 40s and 50s. So it, it, it's not age specific, but it's important for any entrepreneur to understand, at least in my experience, that your end result, the thing that you finish with, um, well, it's never really finished. It's always evolving, but it's always going to be different than what you started with or what your concept of what you were going to do was. You know, you have to be open to those changes because I've met a lot of people and I've actually been one of them myself who was presented with opportunities to take my business down a different path and chose not to make those iterations and pivot and instead to continue down the path I was on. And it ultimately let, uh, led to the first company I started being uh, being tabled basically by my partner and I because we didn't hit the market that we were hoping to hit. So. I think that's very important. You know, it's good that you've been taking something that's a hobby because if you're passionate enough to do it when you have free time, 
then it means that you should be doing it as a profession. And <laughs> take that from, you know, over the course of a year where you've begun to figure out sort of where it is you want to be, what your bread and butter is, who your target customers are, and then eventually come to a place where you say, I'm going to do this full time. And I think that's the same thing that Roberto and Marissa did this year when they finally made that commitment to take their videography company on full time. Yeah, I'm, I'm still in the process of going to that full time, you know, committed uh, stage. I'm, I'm trying, you know, like you said, a lean startup. Like I'm really trying to figure out what, where I can, what, what my monthly um, income, income would be first before it kind of just throwing all my eggs in, which is, I don't, I mean, there's probably a term for it. You probably know. Well, the, I, I'm a little bit different than most people when you start talking to them about entrepreneurship. A lot of people, um, and I, I think wrongly, are under the impression that you need to quit your job and do it full time with no... Mm -hmm you know, expectations yet of, of making money or anything like that. And I am sort of a believer in the other path. I think that you need to maintain a steady income because the easiest way for you to get frustrated, stressed, and start making poor decisions is by not having your financials stabilized personally, right? Mm -hmm. um, then all of a sudden you start making rash decisions based on money instead of based on your business. And uh, I think that, you know, from my perspective and my opinion, that's all it is, is my opinion, is if you're going to start a company, you should be comfortable doing it in your spare time to get it honed in, to get it tested and to understand what it is and actually build a reputation around that. Right. Before mm -hmm. you decide to launch it, get a following, have people use you as clients, give you reviews, testimonials. Put them up on your web page, put them up on, you know, whatever social media account you have. And then from there, start gaining traction and you'll reach that critical mass moment where you have too many people coming to you and you can't handle it doing it part time. And that's when you know that it's a much safer decision to take it on full time. Entrepreneurs, one of the greatest myths of entrepreneurs is that they are massive risk takers. They do their best. Every entrepreneur in history um, that has been very, very successful, has done their best to mitigate risk as much as they can. Uh, and in, in most cases, try to eliminate it as much as they can. There's always a risk associated with what you're doing, you know. Um, but when you get to that point and you understand that the market has demand, there is demand, you've proven it, right? You've proven your mm -hmm. company, then you take it full time and you're comfortable doing it full time. You know, you have a steady flow of income and Businesses like like what you guys are doing, um, I would imagine, are hugely uh, impacted by referral, word of mouth, and reviews. Absolutely, definitely. Right? And I, I I think once you start doing that, just my wife and I today, we were looking at places to stay. We're going up to Atlanta for the weekend to visit with my brother, and we were looking at Airbnbs. And we have a hard time staying at an Airbnb that has no star rating. You know, oh, absolutely. That has yeah. no reviews because we don't know what it's like. But if we look at one and there's 110 reviews and they're all five stars, that makes us feel nice and warm and fuzzy inside. And we say, let's pull the trigger and do it. Mm. You know? So once you get to that critical mass point where you have those reviews, those testimonials, that feedback from people that tell you, even if it's not positive feedback, you learn just as much. You probably learn more if somebody tells you what you've done wrong than everyone just telling you that, you know, it's all sunshine and rainbows. Um, so that, that's, I think a great approach to what it is that you guys are doing. 
And once you hit that point, you'll know, don't force it. Um, people are going to tell you a bunch of different things. You know, you don't have to necessarily take them all as fact, but listen to them and sort of absorb them and form your own opinions about things. But uh, do what, you know, most of the time, what you feel is right. And that in more cases than none will be what the right thing is to do. Okay. So if all you're good. Yeah. I mean, I know it sounds, uh, I know it sounds sort of kitschy, but I think in a lot of situations, especially when you, when you, I can't tell you what to do to start a photography company or videography company. I know nothing about that, you know? Um, and, and if I was to sit down in front of you and you were to tell me what your business was, I like, I've watched judges in my entrepreneurship competitions do pick apart these kids, um, because they ran successful, you know, steel companies or something like that. And these kids are trying to create an app. You know, like there's a there's a baseline understanding of business and I, I get that, but there's also a disconnect between what I'm thinking would be a successful way to go about starting a photography company and you knowing what a successful way is to go about starting a photography company, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and you know, you have that knowledge and what you've been working on for you know a majority of your free time to you know be in the position that you are now so i know i know there's a good book by malcolm gladwell called blink and it talks about um people's first guttural reactions to things and how we tend to shrug them off but in reality it's a great indicator as to whether or not something is good or bad um like statistically it is a very good indicator whether or not you know something is good or something is not good. And, you know, we, we need to learn to sort of trust those guttural instincts a little bit more, I think. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Because um, during my time at te- uh, during my time as a teacher, um, I was using that spare time to like make videos and Marissa working with the photography and we had customers coming in. And just kind of seeing the opportunity there, we made our best effort to play it safe so we saved up as much as we could so we we lived very humbly while i was a teacher and now we have enough money for about five months now uh roughly and we're gonna just give it a shot and that's and it was us trusting our gut and still playing it safe like you said and yeah so right now we're right we're, we're in the trenches right now um we're trying to get a good routine going down and we're just learning as we go and this is like the most experience that we've gotten so far in such a short amount of time, which is really exciting, but it's also kind of nerve wracking at the same time. Yeah, man, of course you're, you're, you're creating your own survival. You know, you're mm-hmm. not relying on the, the school system to send you a paycheck every two weeks. Um, you literally control the outcome of your life at this point. And there's a, there is a, a definite scary element to it that comes along with the, um, very sort of euphoric element of freedom, you know, mm-hmm. being to dictate your own hours and, you know, do that kind of stuff. But I mean, it, it's very serious, you know, and you're, you guys like, how old are you guys? If you don't mind me asking. So I'm 24 and Jake, I think you're 23, right? 22. I turned 23 in about two weeks. Okay. Oh, congratulations, man. And now, like, now, now is a perfect opportunity. I think if you ever want to watch a good speech, Steve Jobs gives a commencement speech at Stanford in the early 2000s, I think around like 2006 or something. And he says something in there that I think is very poignant. I think it was in that speech. He talks about how at 30, you can go be a lawyer. You know, there's nothing stopping you from pursuing a more structured career at 30, 31 years old. 
Mm-hmm. But now when you're young enough, you need to take those risks. You need to sort of step out on a limb and see what happens because you're more, um, you're in a better position to afford to fail. You know, um, if you do, then you're not necessarily behind the eight ball as much as you would be if you're, you know, 30 married, you have kids and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So then you pitch it all out the window and go for it. Yeah, man. And, and, but you make those calculated risks. It's not just like, well, you know, screw it. I'm going to go be a photographer now. And you go out and buy a $3,000 camera and sort of leverage yourself to the hilt. And then you don't have any customers to show for it. Cause you didn't think, well, you know, I bought all this equipment. It's great, but I had no, I have no work. Didn't put the work in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you make that effort, right. Which you've already done. You start building up a customer base and then it begins to dictate sort of where your next steps are. And that's what's exciting, right? So maybe you see that this demographic, maybe your demographic is more weddings or your demographic are more birthday parties or your demographics are more like um, city events and things like that, big events or sporting events. And you start focusing in on that specific market first because your target market, your initial target market, what we like to call the, the early adopters, right? The people who are going to pay you without really knowing the quality of work they're getting at, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you're still new, you're still building that online presence, your book of business, and they're willing to, maybe maybe you come in and offer them a better deal, right? Maybe you're more affordable, but Mm -hmm. they don't really know what the quality is they're getting. You could go in there and you could, you know, be a lot worse than what they were paying for, or you could go in there having them pay less and be the best, damn photographer they've ever seen in their life you know mm-hmm. yeah you, but you're not you don't know walking into that yeah and at that at that point you you start offering you know you, you start making their experience right the user experience the customer experience your main focus um because i can tell you more often than not companies even though they might be uh, might offer a a a product or a service that solves a need in the market their customer service will kill them every time if it's not good mm-hmm. right you go out there and you just crush it and people are like yeah this jake guy one he's an awesome photographer but whenever i needed him he was on the phone we were working on everything together he included us in the process i would recommend him to anyone mm-hmm. you know okay then yeah. that's that's what starts to differentiate you right because everybody whether you're a services business and you're selling yourself just like you guys are or you've created a product and you're selling the next great mousetrap, right? Um, you need to have that unique value position or unique selling position. Um, and that's, if I look at you and a list of all the other photographers in Orlando or Roberto, like you guys down here in Collier County, what's mm-hmm. going to make you jump off the page and separate you from everyone else? What's going to make me want to open up my wallet and give you my credit card and say, here's my money that I've worked hard for. And I want you to uh, with the expectation that you'll deliver to me what you say you will, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's the biggest hurdle. If you can get people to start paying you, then you've accomplished a pretty massive task. You should be very proud of yourselves. Um, but then you start leveraging that business in the form of what we talked about earlier with referrals and reviews and word of mouth. And uh, you start growing your business sort of organically from there. And then you hop into the more um, cost-intensive uh, world of of digital marketing and and marketing just in the sense of you know traditional advertising, mm-hmm. uh, but that's that's down the road. And you may never even have to do that. You know, I, I've known um, when we use the photographer for our wedding, we looked her up. She was on the knot, and 
whatever other bride. Oh yeah, we we actually what, what was that website called? Marisa? Tie the knot, tie the knot, or just a knot? Yeah, just a yeah. knot. So she was like a big time, you know, photographer on all of these wedding sites. And we looked her up and we sent her an email and she's like, yeah, I'm doing weddings here, 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 and here. I could fit you guys in. That's great. And uh, that was it. She did. She brought, she had a couple people come with her that helped her get everything set up. But other than that, she worked on her own. You know, there wasn't a lot of overhead that she had to uh, sort of pay out of pocket. Yeah. And that's the great thing about what you guys are doing is a lot of what you guys have to pay to start your business uh, that comes out of your pocket is an upfront, almost like startup cost with all of your different, you know, camera video, video uh, cameras and your, you know, software and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, That once you have it in place, uh, really it's just traveling and time, you know, that that becomes a little bit more intensive. So, you know, I think, uh, I think what you guys are doing is great. I mean, you know, you're taking the smart path to do it. Just like you said, Roberto, you know, you guys made sure you had a nice little like nest egg to rest on um, mm-hmm. and keep yourself safe for the next few months. But I think you did it great where you kept enough time to sort of still keep that fire lit. Like you're not safe for the next two years. You know, mm-hmm. if you saved up enough money and you were like, well, we could live for the next two years. It might create a little more of a lax attitude. Right. But if you have yeah. four or five months left, you know, you got to hustle it out to make it, you know, to make it to a year, to make it to two years, to make it to five. Exactly. It's all about the hustle. So you were talking about a book of business. Is that, I mean, is that just a term? I have no idea what it is. Is that just an overarching collection of your referrals and work and clients or? Yeah. So that's, that's basically what it is. When I, when I say your book of business, it means your clients, your portfolio. When you walk into a new client, um, it's always helpful for you to have like a really nice display of what your work is along with the responses. And like for us, when we do VR, when we do a VR project, we like to get a testimonial from the company that we work with. Right. But it's much more personal. I could see you guys, especially if you're working the wedding scene to have handwritten notes from the bride saying like, this was an excellent experience type of thing. And then keep those in a folder and you can give those to people or take copies of them and give those to people and say like, these were personal handwritten notes that showed how much we, you know, impacted this experience for them, you know? Mm -hmm. And like that, that all is what I would include in sort of your book of business, your examples of what you've already done to help new clients understand what you're capable of doing. Wow. You literally just blew my mind, Paul, because um, we did a, a wedding on Sunday and the bride actually did write a, like a little thank you letter on a thank you card. Sure. And we were the card itself just made us so happy. But we didn't even think about using that as a business technique, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yours, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you if you take that, there's nothing. I mean, most of what you tell people is going to be from you. You know, like this is what we can do. And a lot of other times you might have some examples of what your work might look like. But testimonials, man, they're an impactful thing. And, you know, they're especially impactful online, you know, with restaurants and hotels and things like that. But if you have something in person that somebody took the time to write to you because you made such a positive impact on literally the biggest day of their lives Mm -hmm. and you walk in and you show them that and you let them read that. And that is a very impactful 
you know, sort of statement without having to make a statement. Wow. You know, crazy. And were you hinting at something about VR, you said? Yeah, or so... Reality? Yeah, so um, the project that I'm working on right now, the company that I'm working on right now with a couple partners is um, a virtual reality collaboration platform that allows multiple users using multiple devices in multiple different locations to all be in the same model together, talking and collaborating on projects. Um, we're currently working, we started in the architectural space and uh, we built a few interactive models for some builders and architects around town. And uh, we're sort of now pivoting and it's one of those sort of, um, like we were talking about earlier, important points in the life of a business where you have to be open to the pivot. Uh, we were approached by an artist who asked if we could make a virtual art gallery. And we of course jumped at the opportunity because it sounded pretty cool to be honest with you. And uh, we're in the process of building that for him. And just through word of mouth, again, we have another interested artist who um, is here in Naples, who's local, but does work all over the world and would love to, um, you know, sort of see what we're doing and be a part of it. And then from him, he is really well connected. We expect to, you know, maybe hopefully leverage that a little bit more too. Um, but that's the importance of it. And none of it works if we deliver a crappy project, mm -hmm. right? Um, if all of a sudden they're like, yeah, this is a great, because all they know is what I tell them. Yes. You know? And if, if I don't deliver, if we don't execute on what we tell people, on what we set expectations for them to, uh, you know, believe we'll be delivering to them, then it's all moot point, right? We won't be anywhere. We'll just be really good salesmen, and that's not my intention, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so the important thing is, is to understand, you know, for us at least, what we can with three people successfully onboard how many clients we can successfully onboard delivering projects in a timely manner right we don't want to bring on 15 new clients if we know that's going to take us for the last client a year to get their thing done you know we want to make sure that we onboard clients we start working out the kinks and these first guys they get a big price break and we tell them like we're beta testing and we want you guys to give us feedback and we want to you know we want you guys to be our first sort of like guinea pigs in that sense where you give us um, all the feedback that you think uh, should be added, removed, changed sort of within the platform. And then from there, we have a really tight relationship with these guys. And once we have it ironed out, they, um, they begin introducing us to new people and we start building our, our own book of business that way. Wow. That's awesome. Um, I know, uh, I think you said, uh, so early adopters, I feel like for us is more wedding. That's kind of where we're leading towards. But for sure. Jay specifically, he actually works with underground artist types of. Oh, it's great. So, so I mean, similar, I mean, I, I work with an artist up here in Orlando. So when you're talking about developing those, you know, virtual reality um, art galleries, I was one that's interesting because you're basically creating a 3D space with their art in it, correct? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll give you an example. The artist that we're working with, he does a lot of live shows at um, at uh, you know, with bands that are playing at some of the bars around town. But he also does a lot of murals for the places too, and um, has been becoming more of a uh, big name around town. And when he's doing these live shows, 
um, we said, you know, you could get the Google Cardboard. And he's like, you know what I could do? I could get the Google Cardboard. I could paint them myself, sell them as a piece of art, and then portion off a little piece of the um, or whatever the venue is in the corner with a couple seats and give people the opportunity to download the app, put their phone in the Google Cardboard, and actually enter my gallery and see all of my works of art that – um, you know, we, we don't have the commerce piece yet, but eventually we expect to be able to have people purchase artwork through the site. <laughs> oh my what? God. So if you look at something, you can buy it. Huh? So you're saying if they look at something in the app, they can buy it. Yeah. So the, the, idea <laughs> would be, the idea would be to walk into the art gallery and, um, it's a simple space, right? So white walls with all of the art on there. And what we can do now is actually within the art, when somebody, um, walks up to it and looks at it. We can have a background story pop up. There's like a little notation that explains what that piece of art is and why it was created, you know? And then uh, that's more of the collaborative piece, right? We can get as many people in there. We, we tend to keep it light because we don't want a hundred different avatars running around. It looks a little crazy, <laughs> but uh, we can do that. And then eventually, and what we would do is, and this is what we're working on with the guy here is creating a more personal touch to their gallery, right? So you enter the app and it's almost like you're in a lobby and there's a book on the table. And in that book, you can flip pages and you can see examples of artwork from all the artists that we're working with. If you want to enter that artist gallery, you can pay a small like 99 cent fee or something. You can enter that gallery, Right. Once you're in that gallery, you'll be able to see every work of art that they have along with information about those pieces of artwork. That gallery that you enter will be personally built to the specifications of the artist, right? Like the artist that we're working with loves Victorian um, architecture and furniture. So we're going to throw in some like old Victorian couches and lights and things like that to make it more his style. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just talked to an artist two days ago who was like, dude, is it possible for you to build like Da Vinci's studio and have us like put our artwork up in Da Vinci's studio? And we were like, yeah, that would be a lot more than what the base, you know, white walls are, but it would be pretty sweet to do. And then eventually once somebody's in there, they can look at the artwork and they'll be able to purchase the artwork directly through the application. That's that, that's not, developed yet but that's where we have our timeline heading oh wow wow okay so yes back to the book of business thing that would be something intense if you could uh replicate an ancient studio right we we weren't really and that's something too is you know you're not really thinking that we were we were thinking more along the lines of like sort of simple um easily uh, manipulated and um sort of copied you know, from one gallery to the next, just to keep the structure the same. But I mean, when he said that we were sort of like, yeah, that would be a pretty sweet idea, man. You know? So there's always that extra bit that you can do. And you always have to be open to listening to what your clients are asking for, because, Mm. you know, I think one of the worst things you can do is say no for the sake of saying no, you know, like, I don't know if that would be a good idea, if that would be cost effective. It would probably cost a lot more. But if it ends up in people wanting to visit there and we end up making more money on the back end, then it could be the best damn decision that we've ever made. Good. 
Very true. And also, if if you say no, they might go to someone else, and they might say yes, and then yeah, that can lead to a whole other situation. Yeah, and and you're right. You know, the last thing you want to do, one, because we're sort of like the first people doing this around the area, you don't want them to go to another 3D modeler or something like that and say, you know, these guys are doing this. Can you do it for me the way I want it? And have someone be like, yeah, sure, man. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. We'll get it done and we'll do it cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. <clears throat> so. And then, and then, you know, snowballing from that. Um, so you have this VR company, which is different than augmented, correct? Yeah. So uh, the the technology that we have, we're our our company is called Augur. So we were focused initially on augmented reality, and we still are. Our, our technology is applicable to augmented virtual or mixed reality. Okay. But and what I'm talking about now is is strictly virtual. Okay, so that's completely computer generated, and you just you're you're basically a graphic designer, is what you do. Yeah, and that's. To be honest with you, what we wanted to start moving away from doing because that's really time intensive, and that's why we focused on the simple gallery um, settings. You know, okay. because for us to build that, it takes a lot of time, and it doesn't necessarily equate to you know the the, the money on the back end. You know, mm-hmm. um, we put a lot of time and effort in, and if we were to scale that way, that's what I said in the beginning. We would have to hire a bunch of people and. Okay. Uh, that would it, that's not necessarily the path we want to take it down. Makes sense. Gotcha. So, how long are you guys thinking that this would take? To be honest with you, not sure yet because this is all pretty new. Yeah, um, it's hard to come up with a uh, with a with an estimate. I can tell you that for an an architectural build, it would take about um, maybe two to three weeks for the first rendering to be done. Wow. So for something as simple as a small art gallery, it probably wouldn't take more than maybe four to seven days. Mm-hmm. So we, we went, um, we went, I went and I took high resolution photos of um, the guy's artwork and then uh, sent those off to our partner, Raphael, who is an architect and he is the one who's really well versed in 3d modeling. And he is, making everything look pretty in the gallery, throwing in some Victorian furniture, and we're going to have a space that we could hop in in virtual and uh, explore. Can you sit on the furniture? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) But I can tell you this much. If you don't use cardboard, which is not a, um, like a, I don't know how you would put it, because I want to say it's not mobile, meaning that you can't walk around when you have it on. Uh, it won't translate over to the environment that you're in, right? So if you move forward when you have a Google Cardboard on, it won't move you forward. You'll just walk into things around your house. Okay. But mm-hmm. if you put on like an HTC Vive or an Oculus Rift or uh, something along those lines, those you can map out. So we have a Vive, and that's typically what we use. And we could map out a space, and you can actually walk around that space, and it'll read in the model. So you can technically walk up to a picture or a, or a bench, right, or a couch and look underneath it and bend down and that'll orient to you and you'll be able to see what's underneath the couch or anything like that. But um, that's more of like the gamified side of things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And it was actually really functional for architecture because people wanted to see what things look like from different angles. Okay. Man. Virtual reality, that's, that's just, that just always blows my mind. It's crazy. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty neat space to be, um, to be involved in, uh, mainly because, I mean, you can see the applications of it pretty much everywhere. You know, I always say that um, my expectation for what we're working on is ultimately to be in education. And Roberto, you can attest to this, man. And uh, maybe Jake, you even know, I mean, you're only, what, four years removed from high school. Like we sit in that classroom and uh, mm-hmm. all of my students are on Snapchat. The best way to get those phones out of their hands and off of something that could potentially be harmful to them, right? is to pop it in a headset and let them learn in a virtual classroom, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the ultimate expectation from at least my perspective, because I think I, I got to see a lot of potential for that in the educational space. So it's exciting, man. It's, it's, it's coming, whether, we, whether it's us or someone else, it'll be here. That's true. That's true. Um, I follow Gary Vaynerchuk, and he talks about sure. virtual reality all the time. So uh, when you mentioned that you're involved with virtual reality when we were back in uh, Mockley High School, I'm like, wow, this is crazy stuff. Like, it's happening right before my eyes. Um, yeah. Wow. So are you, are you trying to make, Paul, it's, it seems like you've had a lot of successful and, you know, business um, lessons taught to you through other, you know, businesses you started or people you've helped out. And then you also are, you know, a teacher and now you're just like a professor. Um, you know what, how are you staying so diverse with what you're doing? Why aren't you trying to stick with just, you know, the virtual reality or just stick with teaching? It seems like you have enough experience to do just one thing and be all right. Yeah. To, to be perfectly honest, it's my own personal preference. You know, I've, I've always, um, I've always needed to diversify and I think you always have to have, um, a side hustle, right? I don't know if you guys ever watched Workaholics, but that was like my favorite episode um, when they were talking about everyone's side hustle. But I think it's true. Right. Um, I think, you know, if I if I quit what I was doing with VR and focus solely on teaching, I would devote just as much time as I would be. I would just have more free time. And Mm -hmm. I tend to go nuts with free time. I'd rather be focusing my energy on something that is creating something new and you know that's why um i've i've had success in teaching i really enjoy it that's my passion um entrepreneurship is my passion i love the idea of creating new things and getting behind especially young people um and you know roberto and i had a very unique experience in immokalee because of its you know economical status um Mm -hmm. literally one of the poorest cities in florida and uh, the, the crazy thing is, is that 90% of America um, in some way is touched by the fruits and vegetables harvested in Immokalee. So their, their fruits and vegetables go out to 90% of the United States. And it's still, uh, I think, like the third or fourth poorest city in, in Florida. Oh, and yeah. I've, I've been out there. It's something else. So, you know, like it's very... Um, it's very unique to see what these kids come up with and what their, you know, idea of success is, right? Because it's different from a lot of other, like I'm a, grew up as a middle, middle-class white kid 
from the burbs, you know, and I had no idea what, you know, the struggles were that these kids are experiencing at, you know, 12, 13, 14, you know, all the way up to 18 years old, uh, where a majority of them um, are, you know, primary breadwinners for their family. And, you know, when you give them an opportunity, when you look at them and you're like, you know, this is, uh, this is not the only path that you have to take, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you start teaching them what it means to be independent and successful, um, or just giving them the opportunity to define what success means to them and then go after it, then you start seeing a, uh, and that's what really, um, that's what really got me motivated and sort of passionate. I, you know, I, I always knew I enjoyed teaching, but that was really what sort of turned me on really to it and seeing the, the, the end result of all of that. So, you know, it's, I love teaching. Um, I'll always have some sort of, uh, focus in education and love the fact that I now get to build an entrepreneurship program, help build an entrepreneurship program out at FGCU. I love the VR thing. I work with uh, taste of Immokalee in, um, over the summer taste of Immokalee is a salsa company out of Immokalee. And I'm also building a curriculum from them that I talked with Roberto about, um, there's a huge potential to copyright that and license it out because Everyone's trying to build entrepreneurship programs for, um, for the, you know, the younger demographic now. So I teach it in high school and they're now implementing it in elementary, I'm sorry, in uh, middle school with the expectation that within the next few years, they'll be teaching it in elementary school. What? Yeah. Isn't that wild? Um, I've never even heard of it until I got to college. Yeah. Neither had I. And I hadn't taken a class in it, um, until I was almost near my master's degree. So uh, it's something that has really exploded. And that's where you start getting a lot of fuzzy stuff. You know, you get those buzzwords, right? And people begin associating it. They think everything's like Shark Tank, you know, and Mm. that's not necessarily the case. Like it's, it's sexy, right? And it sells, but that's not really how a lot of negotiations go, you know, especially if you're a young person looking to raise money to build a business. You know, you're not sitting across from Mark Cuban and a few other people worth a billion dollars. Um, you sure? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest with you, you might be, man. A lot of people, (laughs) a lot of these people, um, that are in these investment groups, um, might have a, you know, a hefty bank account. They have to be accredited investors. So if you're going to raise money, um, focus on the accredited investors. I think in order to be an accredited investor, you have to have a net worth of over a million dollars or a million dollars in the bank or something along those lines. But that's usually the uh, one of the uh, qualifiers for them to be involved in an angel group or a, a venture capital fund. Okay. I don't, I don't right. think I'll be getting into any of those anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, always good to know. Yeah, though. Always good definitely to know. good to know. <laughs> that's like something I never even would have thought you'd have a... Was it a license, like an investor's license? For Yeah, so basically, um, like an, an angel fund um, and a venture capital fund are just like a startup, right? So you have somebody who's going to manage the fund, and they have to go out and raise money so that they can have money to invest in other companies. So um, if, I'm a, if I'm a guy who's going to manage an angel fund, I'm going to go out to all the rich accredited investors that I know, and ask them for a hundred grand each. I want to raise a fund, say that's a million dollars. So I get 10 people at a hundred grand each to give me 
uh, to give me the money and I have my fund. And I invest that million dollars as I see fit, okay? If I don't deliver, then I'm a shitty investor and nobody wants to give me their money anymore, Okay. you know? Mm -hmm. um, but if I do well, then I have a bunch of portfolio companies that are crushing it and I can go out and raise the second fund. And I do the same thing so I have more money to invest in companies and people now know that I'm a good investor. And it's the same thing that you would do if you started a company. If I, we have this VR company, I'll use that as an example. We get to the critical mass point where we need an investment in order to scale appropriately. So we go out and we raise our seed round. We give away a small piece of equity in the company and people give us money because they think we're a good investment. If we fail, then that goes on our resume and we're not looked at as very, you know, it, we may have some sort of uh, derogatory marks in the future if we ever try to raise capital again. But if we sell our company for $100 million to Google, people are like, give this guy money again, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, I don't, I don't want to get too convoluted, but that's sort of like the, the, the way the investment process works. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, outside the TV realm. Yeah, you know, you have to, it, and you know, you could go on Shark Tank, and you know, you don't even need to get an investment. The publicity alone will help sell your company, um, but you really have to do a lot of legwork, and it's super time intensive. Um, like really, really time intensive, contacting these investment groups, making the pitches, tailoring your pitches, building financial projections, building, you know, uh, investment decks and all this other stuff. And uh, you, you spend so much time on that. You don't really spend it on the business, you know. Do you, so, uh, sorry to cut you off. You had some rubber. Do you think, no, go ahead. No. Um, this is top Do you think if you're. Building a company, what is the most, you know, whatever it is, if it's VR, if it's video, if it's a recording company, if it's, you know, uh, an art, if you're an artist building your own studio in your house, um, what would be the most important thing for you to focus on uh, in the long run? You know, let's say you've been doing it for a year or two and you're like, I really want to get to this pinnacle point. I want to be able to do it and make it work. But what is something everyone should focus on once they have their uh, foundation. Oh, mm. I, I've always had a hard time with the, what are you going to do in five years question? I think that's asinine. You know, I, nobody knows what's going to happen in five years. You know, I could maybe predict to you what my business will look like in a year. I would, it would be a stretch for me to tell you in two years what it would look like. But, um, I, I think as a, as an entrepreneur, you need to come up with a, a timeline in the sense of what are the important things that you think you need to accomplish right if it's you know hitting that you know 100 client number or if it's you know being rated this way online you need to define that early on and you need to understand the steps to take to get there and you have to be willing to work hard you know mm -hmm. um, it's not going to be an easy thing that comes to you if you spend a couple hours a day on it you know um, I, I think the most important thing is Focusing on the determination and the hard work, but also understanding how you expect that hard work to pay off, you know, because you don't want to just be putting effort into something that is, you know, irrelevant, you know, if um, I mean, there's a there's a lot of different things for like, say, say we're doing photography, there should be I would have first of all, I would do a shitload of research. 
Um, I'm like a hound when it comes to anything. I will research everything. I'll know what all of my competitors are doing, um, why people are rating them well, why people are giving them poor ratings. And I'll be able to leverage that information when I go into a client meeting. Um, then from there, I could start tailoring my offering to be different from theirs, right? I don't want to be just another Joe Schmo like we talked about. I want to be Paul Evans, photographer extraordinaire. And how do I do that? I have to know my competition. I have to know exactly who my target market is. And what I always tell people is when imagine you have a business, right? A storefront. What person walks through the door and makes you say that is the person I know is spending money here today, right? As soon as you look at them, what race, gender, um, maybe uh, location, where are you located? Um anything, right? Religious affiliation, political affiliation, all that kind of stuff. What are the demographics that describe that person? And once you know that, you can start hitting them hard right out of the gate, right? Okay. And then from there, you can start leveraging that business to begin expanding into other markets. Like we said, if it's, you know, rural country weddings that you're great at, or if it's underground street art, then focus on that and build your book of business. Then when you start branching out into other industries or other demographics, you can go to them and say, listen, I've been doing this for the last two years. I know what I'm doing. And, you know, this is the quality of my work. Here are my reviews and everything like that. And then you set these goals for yourself. Um, you should have long-term goals, but I have, uh, I have a very big affinity for short-term goals um, because they get you excited when you achieve them. And they're much easier to grasp in terms of understanding what you need to do to achieve them, right? If you say in five years, I want to be the White House chief photographer, then like there's a whole bunch of shit that has to happen between now and then for that. Yeah. Happen, right. <laughs> so um, the short term goals, like in six months, what do you expect your business to look like? Or in, you know, in at least one year, what do you expect your business to look like? And where do you expect to be? You know, is it focused in Orlando or do you expect to be branching out and traveling or maybe being located in another in another place? Um, and that that to me is what's important and not getting bogged down too, because I have a tendency to do this. And I know that this is a uh, this is something that could sort of hinder an entrepreneur's success is focusing on a lot of different things at once and not necessarily getting anything specifically done. So I have to make a point uh, because I know I have a tendency to do that to wake up and focus on the things I want to get done and do them, you know, not do them halfway and walk away because I'll forget, you know? Um, so I, uh, that's one of those, that's one of those uh, sort of characteristics of myself. I know I need to, put work on uh put work into and that's something too as an entrepreneur you need to be aware of your strengths and weaknesses surround surround yourself with people who compliment you right who aren't just good at the same things you are but are good at the things that maybe you're not good at yeah and you know Absolutely. learn from them you know so i know that's long-winded but no that makes sense i mean i yeah I, that's you actually touched on something that i've mentioned that i have problems with is i'll sit down and see nine things i need to do i'll work on four of them Mm -hmm. Instead of just maybe two and finishing them. And then yeah. the other five things that are in my head are distracting me from the four things I'm working on that day. It's just, mm -hmm. I have so much going on. Yeah. Uh, brain dump, you know, keep a notebook next to your bed at night and write down all the things that you want to accomplish the next day.
Yeah. Um, there is a sense of accomplishment after you do something like that, and it helps you maybe sleep a little bit better. Uh, yeah. And it's crazy that you said that, Paul, because um, I actually did make a video on that last week on the importance of just having a routine because um, from being a full-time teacher to hitting that summer mode, it was like a huge change for me. Mm-hmm. And I personally, I had like a like trouble getting back. Like I had to create a routine for myself because I was waking up like at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. when I was used to waking up like at 5 a.m. for work. And you just, like you said, you have to create a list, create goals for yourself and just knock them out. And that's, that's, that works. It really does. Yeah. And I, I, there's some, there's some other crazy stuff, you know, I'm, uh, um, like reading Tony Robbins. I think he's a pretty unique character and something that he said, uh, that he does is he gets up every morning and he jumps in a cold pool and, uh, the pool set at like 50 degrees or something ridiculous and it's freezing. And uh, he does it for a couple of reasons. One, they have the, the cold, you know, sort of kickstarts your bar- body into gear. But two, he trains his mind to just do it, right? So um, instead of sitting there and thinking about it and thinking about, you know, what it's going to feel like and everything, you just basically tra- train your mind to pull the trigger and do it. And I think that's a, that's a helpful thing. So when I would wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to, um, to get ready to go to school in Immokalee, I would literally get in the shower and turn it ice cold and just sit there for a couple seconds, just wake myself up, you know? Um, so that, I mean, those are just sort of quirky things that work for me, you know, um, focus on clearing your mind. If your mind's like mine, Jake, sit down and meditate for 10 minutes a day, you know, um, try and clear your mind a little bit. It's something that, uh, that has helped me in the past. And I think, you know, we, we just have to recognize our deficiencies and take control of them before they, well, I know it sounds kitschy, but take control of us because they will. That's true. And, and most of the time, like wh- whatever we're thinking about doing, we're just focused on how long it's going to take. But once you actually start, you knock it out normally less in the less amount of time that you thought it was going to take. Yeah. So, so which is down. crazy. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's never as bad as you expect it to be, you know? Yeah. It's all about getting started. It really is. Jumping right in. Um, but yeah. Uh, Jake, do you have any more questions? No, man. This, Paul? this was Paul. It was a pleasure having you. You know, you're a wealth of knowledge. I'd love to have you back on here. Yeah. In the yeah, Paul, yeah, exactly. And Paul, like I said before, man, like you just really have a really good voice for this. And you should consider starting your own podcast on your own if you want, because you really killed it, man. You did awesome. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I downloaded this app and I was uh, toying around with the idea. (laughs) There's no reason not to. You can take it and put it straight on iTunes. That'd be pretty cool. Maybe I will, man. I'm going to look into it. I think uh, I think that could be fun, even to transition it over to um, teaching next year at FGCU, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, man, I, I appreciate you guys having me. This was fun. I, I'm, I was, uh, I'm happy to talk to you guys. Of course. And I can't wait to report back to you in a couple months with, uh, <laughs> new updates. Yeah, man, that's what we should do. Circle back with me in a couple months and we'll, um, we'll sit back down and we'll just talk some more. Yeah, All right. All right. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> All right, fellas, you have a good day. I'll, I'll talk to you guys soon. You too. All right. All right, take it easy, guys. And that's a wrap.
<laughs> wow. Uh, that's really all I can say. Wow. Thank you, Paul, so much for coming on that podcast. You're a great guy. Awesome to talk to you. It was great learning from you. Folks, if you enjoyed that podcast, please remember to give KWCP five stars and write us a dope review either on Apple Music, Google Play, or the Anchor app. Don't forget to also give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash kicking it with cool people. We also have a YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to that and check it out. We have future content coming out there very, very soon. Uh, me and Robert have our own YouTube and Instagram channels as well. Check it out in the show notes below. Now, remember, this wraps up episode five. Next week, I have Drex Carter coming on the podcast. He's a rapper out of Orlando. Awesome kid. Uh, very, very excited for him to get on and talk to everyone. Tune in next Sunday at 7 p.m. Jake, getting out of here.